Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to have you turn over to Proverbs chapter 2 again. And uh, we'll be back in chapter 2, and we'll be at the same place we started last week in chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. You remember I told you we would take a couple of weeks to develop this passage. Uh, As we're coming through Proverbs, if we're going to do it, and there's so much in Proverbs that I, you know, I, I don't want to... I don't want to just brush through it quickly. I want to make sure that we take the time to give you everything that you need, simply because I think that Proverbs is one of the main books uh, in the Bible that at some point in your life you really have to understand. I've said it many, many times that if I could have any one book in my life that I could have total recall with, that I could just remember everything in it and every verse and every chapter and every layout in it, it certainly would be the book of Proverbs. Unfortunately, I don't have that ability, but I'd certainly like to. And I told you we'd take a couple of weeks to develop this passage as it pertains to the two great aspects in this book that we've talked about that I think are absolutely invaluable to us, and that is the concept of the evil man and the strange woman. And uh, last week we examined the doctrinal aspect of it. I, I think that's very important. I want you to come away from the book of Proverbs when, when we're finished with this with a complete, well-rounded understanding of it. And uh, last time we talked about the evil man and the strange woman, woman being the Antichrist doctrinally and uh, you know, his religion as it applies to the nation of Israel in a prophetic sense. I showed you the great types or model in the Bible. We went to 1 Kings chapter 17 and it's also in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, in the lives of of one of the wickedest kings that Israel ever had and his wife who was a religious prophetess, and that is Ahab and Jezebel. They stand as the great model in the Bible of of the evil man and the the strange woman. And we see how that through what they did and all that they brought in with the false religion of Baal worship, how that they basically uh, infested the nation of Israel and and then in time uh, it brought them down its, its demise. But I also promised you last week that uh, we would look at the inspirational application, how it applies to you. We know now how in a prophetic sense it pictures what the Antichrist is going to do and is doing right now. The Bible says uh, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. He's already at work doing what he's doing with the nation of Israel. But there's a practical thing here. There's something that will help you in your everyday life. There's something that will help you uh, tomorrow, next week, when you have to face the issues. And, and when you understand it, you have a better, uh, a better hope of, of, of dealing with it. And we're going to look at the practical side of this concept so you can see how it works in your life. Now, we're going to talk basically about the real and present danger of the evil man uh, and the strange woman in your life. Today, we'll start with the exact same passage uh, that we had last week. And we'll examine the evil man this week, and then next week we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about the strange woman. But let's pick it up here in chapter 2, verse 10. And it says, When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, and the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked, and they froward in their paths, 
to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words, and forsake the guide of her youth, which forsaketh the guide of her youth, and forgetteth the covenant of her God. For her house inclineth unto death, and her path unto dead. None that go uh, under her return again, neither shall they take hold of the paths of life. That thou mayest walk in the way of good men, and keep the paths of the righteous, for the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. But the wicked shall be cut off from the earth, and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. Now, Father, we thank you for last week. We saw how this applied in a prophetic sense, a doctrinal aspect to the nation of Israel. We saw how that this evil man and this strange woman prophetically uh, foreshadow what's going to happen to Israel and what has happened to Israel uh, by getting involved in the things of the world and Baal worship and, and leaving the paths of God, the, the guide of her youth, uh, the covenant that God made with them. And Lord, yet there's a great practical side to this because just as Israel goes through the things that uh, she goes through, we as Christians go through the things that we go through. And the plan of the devil is not much different from what he wanted to do with Israel than he wanted to do with us. And so help us today. Help us to come to it from a, a sensible, practical approach. Help us to look at this passage as it applies to us as individuals. This not, we're, help us not to worry today about saying, well, I know somebody like that or I know this person's like that. But help us, Father, to look at ourselves and say, yeah, I'm like that. And then to take it and to move from there. And we'll thank you and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you'll remember last week that uh, I gave you four elements that you get, um, the treasures, I called them, the gifts that God gives us when we get the mind of Christ. And we talked about that's what the book of Proverbs is. I've said it many, many times that the job of every Christian is simply to find out what God wants you to do with your life, find out what God thinks about everything in life, and then take our own private opinions that we've built up over the years, throw it out, and make our opinion God's opinion taking the mind of God, the way God looks at things, and making it the way we look at things. That's, that's very uh, crucial in our lives. But I showed you four things that, uh, that God gives us once we do that. We talked about knowledge in, in every sense of God's sense, the knowledge of God. We talked about that knowledge will develop into wisdom. And then when you learn how to use knowledge and use wisdom, it gives you probably the greatest thing that it, it brings is understanding. And then, of course, those three things, the knowledge, the wisdom, and understanding, give you something that is absolutely invaluable as a Christian, and that is discretion. And, uh, you know, God has told us in the passage that <clears throat> when we get discretion, that it's going to preserve us, and understanding will keep us. And what it keeps us from is, is the attack of the devil in your life and my life, in Christianity, uh, by the evil man and the strange woman. woman. And we want to talk about what that means. I want to show you how in a practical sense uh, it really, what it really stands for so you can see it for what it is and understand better. You remember the definitions I gave you last week. I, I think they were very important. Uh, that understanding is the ability that you come to in your life because you get knowledge, you get wisdom, you have a relationship with God. And when you get understanding, understanding is the ability to grasp the principles that go along with any issue that you see in life. 
When you have understanding, you simply understand uh, the principles involved. You have something come into your life. You have something you've got to deal with. And you've heard me say it many, many times. Many times in your life and my life, I'm not responsible for the bad things that happen to me in my life. Many times there'll be things that come into your world that you're not responsible for. But even though I may not be responsible for them coming into my life, I am responsible how I deal with it. And that is understanding. Understanding is the ability to grasp the principles that go along with any issue. But then discretion. Discretion is the ability to apply the principles to any issue because you now understand it. You understand what it really is and not how it seems to appear. That's discretion. And you'll, you'll, you'll want to see this. Uh, uh, I, you know, I talk about breaking things down to the lowest common denominator. I talk about getting things down where you can't divide it out anymore, that it's, it's what you really have is what it is. And, you know, the main attack of, of, and the effect of Baal worship, uh, we talked about it last week, and we talked about how it destroyed the nation of Israel. And that is true. But when you really lay it out and study it and you see it from the inspirational application and you put it all together, and this is what I call discretion at work, the main focus or the attack uh, uh, in the effect of Baal worship was not just to destroy the nation of Israel, uh, though it really did. And that obviously happened. But I want you to see this and understand this because here lies the heart of what we want to talk about today in relationship to the attack of the devil uh, through the evil man and through the uh, next week the strange woman. But in fact, the main goal was uh, to destroy the families that were in with Israel. You see, when God built the nation of Israel, and you know, we've talked about it before, uh, when God built the nation of Israel, he built it on the family unit. He built it on the family unit. He said over there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he had a plan for Israel. You know what that plan was? He says in Genesis 12, 3, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. You see, God knows that nations are made up of families. And so God made the nation of Israel and he built the unit that built the nation strong was the family unit. And that's why, if you, maybe you never thought about it, that's why in Genesis chapter 18, verses 8 through 19, somebody asked a question in Bible study about a couple of months ago that what did God see in Abraham, that he, he chose Abraham to be uh, who he was and to be the friend of God. And we could talk about a lot of things in Abraham's character that God probably saw. But keep in mind now that when God structured the nation of Israel and had a plan for the nation of Israel to have all the families of the earth be blessed by this nation, God set this nation up based on families. And when God looked for Abraham and when God looked for somebody that he wanted to put in charge to be the formulation of this great nation, he chose Abraham. And he told us in Genesis chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, that God said, for I know him, that he will command his children. He knew that Abraham would keep the family unit together. And of course, this is why, and most people don't understand this, this is why in the Old Testament there's such harsh penalties for rebellious children in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, children get, a lot, uh, get away with a lot of things today, and you have children that do things that uh, are totally outside the scope of the Bible and God today in Christianity under grace. 
but it was not true under the law. Under the law, if you had a child that was rebellious and, and talked back to the parents and wouldn't do what the parents said and wouldn't father the rule of the father, it wasn't like it is today. It was the fact that uh, the father who laid down the law began to talk and say, this is what I want you to do. That child said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do my own thing. They took that child to the elders. The elders of the nation of Israel tried to reason with that child. When that child portrayed the obstinance that many uh, children do today to their parents and to church and to pastors or whatever, uh, it wasn't a thing where they, 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 they medicated him. It wasn't a thing that, uh, that they, they looked for some alternative. Pro- what they did is took him out and put him in a hole and stoned him to death. Rebellion in the Bible in children in the family was dealt with very swiftly and very harshly. You know why? Well, now I'm telling you why. Because God knew that the success of the nation of Israel, its strength was going to be in the family unit. And so he's very protective of that. And you're going to find that when the devil uh, tried to destroy the nation of Israel, he didn't come at the nation, he attacked the families. And when the families got attacked, because when the family went, the nation went. The erosion of the family unit brought the downfall of the nation of Israel. And I, I tell you all the time, and it's the same thing when we get into the practical side today. We'll see exactly the same thing. The total failure of the family, and I'm talking about the Christian family as God's structure for the church. And the attack today, just as it was with Israel, and God wants to destroy what the church is called to do, he's going to do it the same way he did with the nation of Israel because the church is built on the family unit. And you'll see that as we come through it here in just a little bit. I've learned something over the years, and if you don't get nothing else out of what I say today, it will be have worth your time to get what I'm about to tell you. And I, I have learned this over the years. I've watched this. I, I told the people in uh, people ministry yesterday this, and I, uh, it's, it's so true. I've watched that what happens in the world, what the world embraces, what the world brings into its surroundings, if you watch that thing very carefully, whatever the world brings in and the world establishes and does, if you watch it, it'll creep into Christianity in about 20, 30 years. It's just the way that it works. It's that effect that the world has. And uh, it, it's just the way that it goes. And the church is built on that family unit. So uh, this is why he says that, that, that knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding and discretion will preserve you. It'll keep you. It'll keep your family. It'll keep, uh, it'll protect your family. It'll preserve your family. So I had a, uh, up where I go work out, I got a couple of friends up there that are Christians. And they're really nice people. They don't have a lot of Bible knowledge, but they're, they're, they're nice people, and I enjoy, I enjoy them. And we were walking around one day, and uh, this was last week, and there was three of us kind of walking there, and both guys, and I, was, we were, and I don't really say a lot. You know, I just go do my thing and come home. You know, so many people up there, when they got their, when they got their uh, memberships for the fitness center, they, they didn't get workout permits. They got camping permits. I mean, they just sit around and talk all the time, you know, which is fine. And so we were walking around a track up there between my, my sets, and I, uh, they were talking about, and one of them said to me, 
Don't you think the world has gotten a lot more wicked today than it was, say, 100 years ago? And the other guy said, yeah, I think it's terrible. I think the world is, is much more wicked today. And I, he's, they went on about this is why we have all the problems we have. And I didn't really say anything because, you know, it, I, I just didn't want to get into it because there's no point to it. But I was, I was listening to it, and they, and they said, you know, they talk about how much more wicked the world is today than it was uh, 100 years ago. And that's really, you hear that a lot. That's the standard thought today. Uh, you know, the truth is, and, and the reality is, that's simply not true. It's just not. The world is not any more wicked today than it was in Genesis 3, 1 Kings 18, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where we got the idea that, the devil waited to about 2000 A.D. and then said, okay, let's bring in the real wicked demons now to destroy the world. I'm not where that got started. But again, those are good people. And this is not derogatory toward them because I love them and they're good people and they love the Lord and all of that. But it shows me that they didn't have any discernment. It showed me that they didn't have any understanding or discretion to make a statement like that. Hey, it's not the fact that the world is more wicked. It's simply the fact that Christianity is more worthless. That's the problem. Matthew 5.13 says that ye are the salt of the earth. Salt in the Bible is a, it's a, it's a preservative. It preserves things. And, and we are the salt. Christianity is the salt. Israel in the Old Testament was the salt. The Word of God's the salt. We are the salt that preserves the world around us. And when you go back 100 years ago or 200 years ago, it isn't the fact that, that the world was less wicked. It's the fact that Christians were closer to God. They believed more about the Bible. They loved the Lord. They lived the life of Christianity. They weren't Christians who talk about this and that. They weren't churches who talked about, you know, we're a church, but we got a gambling ministry. We're a church. We have social drinking. We're a church. We have this. We're a church. We have that. They were a church that stood firm on the Word of God, and that Word of God that they stood on was the King James 6, 10, 11 authorized version, and it preserved this world. Amen. It's gone. The salt has lost its savor. It really has. The, when the family goes today, the church goes. And when the church goes, the nation goes because it's the church made up of the families that preserves the things of God. And that's why you'll find that you even go back to the beginning of our country, back in the 1770s when our country was first established. Many of our founding fathers uh, were, were, were Christians. They were born-again believers, but many of them were not. But you know when you read their bios and you read about them and you read their standards and their morals and their, what they look for to put in a country, you've got to really look hard because it's hard to see the saved people from the lost people because the lost people back then were closer to God than most saved people are today, and they were lost. You know why that is? Because this country had a love and a reverence for God and the Word of God that we don't have today. And they understood the aspect of families. Back then, the families were one unit in a very solid way. They, they, they didn't have all the gadgets and all the places that we have today to separate out our families. And I'm not saying it's bad. But you worked on a farm, you lived in a log cabin, you ate together in the morning, you worked chores together in the afternoon throughout the day, you ate lunch, you ate dinner together, and you sat around a table and talked to each other. No TV, no radio, no iPod, no phone, no texting. It was just family communication. What a novel idea. 
But that's the way it was, you see. But now I'll tell you, Christians today can't see what I just said. Churches can't see it because they have no understanding and they have no discernment. And remember now, what comes into the world will seep into Christianity 20 or 30 years later. And today, Christians and churches, they do what everybody does in the world. Uh, the world today, instead of taking responsibility uh, for Christianity, for instead of taking responsibility for the mess that we're in, and pastors getting up and saying, we've got to change the way we do business. We've got to get back to the old paths. We've got to do what the Bible says and start believing the book and preaching the book. Instead of doing that, we go around uh, the famous blame game. We blame it on the world. Well, the world is more wicked today. It's harder to build a church today than it is, uh, was 100 years ago because of how wicked the world is. It's harder to re- re- raise your family today because of how wicked the world is than it was 100 years ago. Hey, let me tell you something. I don't care how bad it gets. The Bible is still the Bible, and it still means what it says and will still preserve and keep you based on what you do with it. It's just that simple. But see, we've lost that today. The standard operating procedure is, is the, the blame game. Blame it on something else. Blame it on somebody else. This is what goes on in our country. This is what is going on in Washington right now while we have a government shutdown. I had a number of people <coughs> call me after the government shut down, you know, and wanting to know what I thought about it. And they say, well, what do you think about the government shutdown? My standard answer was the government shut down a long time ago. The government shutdown took place when the government threw God out of government. Amen. Just because it keeps going through the motions and pretends like it's doing something, it didn't do anything. This government reminds me like a machine some guy invented one time. It had one million moving parts, and when he put the plug in and pushed the buttons, everything moved, and somebody said, what does it do? And he said, it doesn't do anything. It just moves a lot. And that's the way we are in our country today. And it's because nobody wants to take responsibility. The Democrats want to blame the Republicans. The Republicans want to blame the Democrats. <clears throat> nobody wants to say, we need to get our own house in order and get back to what made this country great. Yeah. But that's where we're at today. That attitude <clears throat> has crept into Christianity today. It really has. Now, from a practical standpoint, <clears throat> this evil man <clears throat> is the main threat to you and you're a family because the devil wants to destroy your family. And he wants to destroy everything in your life. He wants to take your marriage and destroy it. He wants to take your children and drag them into the world. He wants to take everything in your life that God put in your life to do something and take it away from you. And I've never understood what I'm about to say. It's always been somewhat of an amazement to me. I've never really understood it. You know, when your children are growing up, <coughs> parents protect them from certain things, as you should. And, you know, one of the main things you teach them is don't talk to strangers. I remember when my two girls were growing up, we, we hammered that a lot. We talked, don't talk to strangers. I think we called them men stealers back then. And we drove into them, don't talk to strangers. And you're, you get it all time today, <clears throat> especially today, you know. Uh, don't, <clears throat> you know, don't get into the car with them. Don't go, if they say, I've lost my dog, can you go help me find it? Don't believe it. Don't get in the car. If they want to give you some candy or they want to ask directions, they want to get you closer to the car, don't do that. Every parent's worst nightmare, I guarantee you, every parent's worst nightmare would be the abduction of their child. I, I can't even fathom that. 
And so we tell our kids, if you see a stranger, if you see some man out there in a car, or he's standing on a street corner, and he says, hey, kid, come here, I need your help. You run, you scream, you yell, you run to the nearest house, you run to the nearest policeman, you run to this, you run to that. You get away from that because we know where that's going to lead. Yet it never ceases to amaze me. When it comes to warning your children and training them about staying away and staying on top of them in their life, of staying away from the evil man and the strange woman, which will certainly hurt them, we say nothing about it at all. In many cases, I mean, I'm going to tell you something. The evil man in the Bible, we're going to talk about the strange woman next week, but the evil man of the Bible will do much more damage to your children than any guy on a street corner will. Now, this evil man here for us in a, in, a, in a practical sense, I mean, if you love your children uh, uh, and, 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 and you don't want anything to happen to them, but you, you lose your kids to the world through the teaching and the seduction of the evil man and the strange woman, and you wind up that your child has been abducted right from under your nose. You know, we had a, had a case here a couple of years ago about the baby Lisa deal. Which is a tragic thing, where the mom, you know, and the dad don't know how, I mean, they all went to, dad was working, she went to bed, and, you know, and then she gets up in the morning and the baby's gone. They've looked up one side and down the other. They've done everything, run every lead they could to find this baby. How does somebody come into a home, how does somebody come into your house while you're there and abduct your child? Well, it happens all the time in Christian families. When I was growing up in the 70s, preachers were railing against televisions. And many Christians, and I don't argue with them if they stand on it. I understand where a lot of them come from. But I've heard so many messages called the thief in the living room. That, you know, the first introduction that your kids get to drinking, the first introduction your kids get to smoking, the first introduction your kids get to fornication or adultery or murder or rape or incest, is the thing you put right in your home that they get introduced to. And the evil man will take that and he'll use that. The strange woman will use that and will take that. Now, today it's different. Today we got laptops. We got Facebook, MySpace, In Your Face, all those things that... Your kids communicate that most parents are oblivious to. Let me ask you a question. How does an 18, 17-year-old girl get online in a chat room with some guy who they develop a relationship and talk back and forth, and then that guy in your own home gets her to meet him someplace for a sexual encounter, and while you're there watching what you're watching, doing what you're doing, Whatever's taking place in your world, right from under your nose, your daughter becomes abducted. How does that happen? Happens all the time. It happens all the time. And many times the evil man abducts our children, your children, and it's because the parents drove them to the evil man drop-off zone. Many times, uh, you know, I've learned this. The greatest people get this wrong. The greatest sin in the Bible are not the things that you do. Do you know that? The greatest sin in the Bible is the sin of omission. The greatest sins in the Bible aren't the things you do. The greatest sins in the Bible are the things you don't do. 
And when you look at your family, when you look at yourself, and you realize you tell your kids, don't go around strangers, stay away from strangers, don't talk to them, don't do this, and then you allow the evil man to walk right into your home. Many times you walk them to the car and open the door and buckle them in. It always seems to amaze me how parents can be so adamant about the stranger on the street corner, the evil man on the street corner, and forsake the one that got in their own house that will do everything they can do to destroy your kids. I, I tell parents all the time, I, I, I tell them all the time, I, I preach this from, from day one, I tell them all the time that nothing or no one should have more influence over your child's life than you do. Nobody. No teacher, no coach, no Cub Scout leader, Girl Scout leader, nobody. No guy, no girl, friend. Nobody should have more influence in your child's life than you do unless you allow them to. But what we do is the same thing that they're doing in Washington right now. We want to blame it on everybody else. We want to blame it on everything else. And uh, I, I, I tell you, and, I, and listen, you want to write this down. Parents who won't take the responsibility for their children while they're growing up and they wound up getting turned over to evil man, most of them will never take responsibility when they're age 20, 30, uh, and they're completely gone over to the world. It's always somebody else's fault. And the truth of the matter is, it's our fault. It's our fault. Now, for you young parents, I have some good news. The book of Proverbs and your application of it into your family will make sure that that never happens. And I'm not going to be so foolish to sit here and tell you that you won't have tough times raising your kids. Kids go through struggles in their life that you as a parent will have to be on top of. Kids will have their ups and downs just like you and I have our ups and downs. Your kids will make goofy choices just like you and I make goofy choices. They will get into things that are wrong just like you and I get into things that are wrong. You're not, it, it doesn't say that your kid is going to be problem-free, but the key word there is preservation. The key word there is God will preserve them. You know, God, I believe this with all of my heart, and everybody in this church does that's a member of this church. I believe the Bible is the absolute preserved word of God. Amen? Amen. I mean, when God gave us this book, God preserved every word, every chapter, everything that he wanted. I believe it's the word of God cover to cover, including the cover. And I believe that when God gave us this book, he gave us a book that was absolutely preserved, that was never tainted or tanned with by man. You believe that? Amen. But brother, when you go down through history, this book went through some tough times, didn't it? Amen. It wasn't smooth sailing all the way down through history. There was times when it was a capital offense to have the Bible that I'm holding today, punishable by death. There was a time when it was hated so much in history that, that and even today, I, I tell you all the time, the Bible's much more powerful than an atom bomb, much more powerful. You know why? Because I know five countries that outlaw Bibles, and I don't know one that outlaws atom bombs. This book is power, and it's preserved, but it went through some tough times. It had its own evil man after it and strange woman, but it was preserved. And when you get the principles of the Word of God in your life first and you put them into the life of your family, no matter what bumps and rough times you go through, at the end of the day, it'll keep you and preserve you. Now, that evil man here that we're going to look at today in a practical way will be the worldly wisdom. 
that goes completely against God. And it comes at you and me in many, many forms. It, 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 some forms are very, are, are, are very clear. Other forms, oh boy, it's, it's, you could, boy, you, you look at it and you have to look at it and really know the Bible to see what's wrong with it. But it comes to you in many forms. It's what you will be exposed to every day of your life. If you turn on a radio, the evil man will be talking to you. If you turn on the television, the evil man will be talking to you. If whatever you do, wherever you go, if you drive down the road and just simply look at the billboards, he'll be talking to you. It was said to us in Daniel chapter 1 when the Hebrew children were taken down into Babylon into captivity, children of the king's seed, pictures of Christians, that Babylon, a type of the Antichrist and a type of the devil, and certainly the evil man in the Bible, had a daily proportion he prepared for them. And every day in your life and my life, when we step out that front door, we turn on the TV, we read a magazine, we pick up a newspaper, the evil man goes to work. Amen. He has a daily portion for you and for me, and he has one for your children too. He simply does. And it's a thing where when you, when you, when you understand how that works, when you realize that, that he's going to come at you in, in many, many ways, we saw it in the book of 1 Corinthians, didn't we? Remember when we studied that book back there? We saw how, how worldly they were as a church, how many problems they had. And, uh, and yet we know from studying it that the problem was that that was a church that was operating in worldly wisdom. Paul told him in chapter 2, verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's the problem today. Notice he said, your faith, they're saved people. This is what the problem is today. God's people's faith, God's people's faith is in the wisdom of men and not the power of God. Now, when you define this evil man in Proverbs, you find five things about him I want to talk to you about today. These five things, huh, all the years in my life in the ministry and dealing with people and seeing people, how they react to the Word of God. Some do what's right, some do what's wrong. I've seen this thing over 10,000 times perform itself. This is exactly what happens when a man or a woman begins to leave God and go to the world. These five steps are the five steps down. And remember in your Bible, five is the number of death. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you think you are. I don't care what you know. These five steps downward will lead you, me, your children right to the world if you don't deal with it. And when you go to the world, and people go to the world all the time, we've had people come to this church, every church I've ever been associated with all my life. I've seen people come in, want to get into the Word of God. Some of them do get into the Word of God, but then something happens. They quit growing spiritually. They quit doing what's right with God. They get a problem with God or something in their life. And you know what? they begin to go down these five steps. And these five steps are the worst five steps that you could ever take in your life because they're not five steps up, they're five steps down. And I've seen it all of my life. Now look at Proverbs chapter uh, 2 here and look at verse 13. Step number one. When you decide in your heart you're going to go from God and you're going to start hanging out with evil men, the evil man, and all that that represents. Now, I'm going to try to show you a, 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 a collage of different things here as we go through this. The first thing it says in verse 13, that he leaves the paths of uprightness. Now, that may not seem like much, but in your life, when you leave the paths of, uh, of uprightness, 
That means now that you've gotten off the old path. The old path is, is based on principles in the Word of God. The old path is based on truth. The old path is based on responsibility and accountability. The old path is based on the principles of the Word of God that will tell you exactly what God wants you to do, what He thinks about this. But now we leave the paths of uprightness. That's step one. Step one down. Now we forsake any moral structure. Now we start to lose our family values. Now we have no standard for ourselves. We begin to see double standards. And we know what the Bible says about that. We begin to not have any absolute focus on anything. We now begin to allow other gray areas to come in, and we now think that they're okay. If a, if a, if a daughter marries an unsaved man, or an unsaved a man, or a, a, a boy marries an unsaved girl, now we justify it. Now we don't know what to do with it. We're out of control because we've lost our kids, so now the only thing a parent can think to do is make the best of it. I'm going to tell you something. It's never good to make the best of a very bad situation. The thing you have to do is do what the Bible says in that bad situation. But that's where we're at today. The evil man, hey, now get off that path of uprightness. He has no moral restraint. Nothing's going to hold him back. He has no value system. He can't control his flesh. Now we'll take no responsibility for our actions, no accountability. And you see this all the time, and this is the step one of not only the failure in your life, but it's the failure of the family and ultimately the failure of Christianity. Ha, come on, how many times as a young man or a young lady, I know I've heard it probably a thousand times, where somebody older than me says, son, you're headed down the wrong, you finish it. You betcha. You see, God has certain ways that things must be done. He has certain standards that must be followed. He has certain responsibilities that must be taken. Now it only gets worse. Because sin never leaves you any better than it finds you. And sin never makes you better. And leaving the old path for a new one is not a good choice in life. We see it in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 would be our model. Remember when the Philistines had the ark of God? They took it because Israel wasn't doing right and God gave it to the Philistines. Well, they decided to do right and God gives them the ark back. And you know the story, if you remember it at all. They went down to get that ark and and uh, a guy by the name of Uzziah goes down to help him. And I look at Uzziah as probably just like any good-natured, good-mannered, want-to-do-right Christian that you find today. And they put that ark on an ox cart. And that ox cart is bringing it back to the nation of Israel. Well, along the way someplace, the Bible says the ox stumbles. And the ark begins to topple and begins to look like it's going to fall. Uzziah reaches up and puts his hand up there to steady that ark so it doesn't fall. Now, wasn't that a good thing? I mean, I think that's very commendable. Who'd want God to fall on the dusty old dirt road? 
That ox stumbled, the cart began to go back and forth, and Uzziah said to himself, I'm not letting my God fall on the floor. And he reached up and put his hand to hold it, and God come out of heaven and killed him. Now, you know there's a lot of God's people look at that and say, whoo, what was God's problem that day? You know what the problem was? That's a picture of what we've got today. If you know your Bible, you know that that Ark of the Covenant was given to them by God. And God gave some very specific ways that they were to move that Ark of that Covenant. It had rings in it on the sides, and there was long wooden stays. And they slid those stays through there, so you had a guy in the front, two guys in the back, that carried that on their shoulder. That was the way that God designed that ox cart to be carried. But Israel had gotten away from God. Israel now, like most churches, thought they had invented a new way to carry the ark of God. God does not want a new way to carry the ark of God. God does not want a new way for churches to preach the gospel. God does not want man to reinvent what God invented He wants it to work the way that it needs to work. That ox cart on that cart is a picture of man taking something that God designed and to be carried the way God wanted to be carried and man thinking he knew how to do it better than God. It's a picture of all what we have today in churches. That we forsake the old path. We do now a new version of the New Testament Christianity. We do now a new version. We change the Bibles. We change the music. We change the service. We now take our services that were designed in the book of Nehemiah with a pulpit, the priest, the word of God, and we turn them into Las Vegas shows. It's a new ox cart mentality. And God didn't accept it. And when it comes to your Christian life, let me just be blunt. There is no new way to do it. There are standards we have to follow. There's holy principles that have been put down that God wants us to go by. We don't have the leisure or the luxury uh, under the grace to change the rules. He told us what he wanted us to do. He told us the way that it needed to be done. And now when a man leaves the paths of uprightness and he heads down, he heads down that path. He doesn't get any better. He only gets worse and it leads him to step two. And when the man gets off the path of uprightness, then he walks in the way of darkness. Now, I'm going to show you how they continually get worse. And you can probably think, maybe in your own life, how this happened to you. You can certainly see many, many people, if you work with people, how it happens in their life. Verse 13 says, he walks in the way of darkness. Psalms 1 said, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of God, nor standeth in the way of sinners. This guy has left the path of uprightness, the word of God, and now he's hanging out in the way. He's going his way instead of God's way. He's going the world's way. He's now forsaken God's way and his standards, and now he's going the way of darkness. Now, I, I want to tell you something. We know the world is darkness. And for you as a Christian, for me as a Christian, when we lose the word of God in our life, even though you may be saved, now you're on the path of darkness. And in darkness, you know what the number one thing you got to contend with? You lose your perspective. And this is what happens. 
in a totally, completely dark room. You have to feel your way along because sight no longer enters into the equation. You have to feel the wall. I was remember downtown down in South Africa, and we took a, 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 a tour down in a, in a gold mine that was a very productive for many, many years. We went down 1,300 feet. There was like 20 levels to this. I mean, you talk about the bottomless pit. I thought we were there. And when you got down there, they walked you through and showed you how that they dug out the gold and how they did this and how they did that. Then they brought you to a place and they said, let us show you how it, dark it is down here if you have a power failure and they turn off the light. I'm telling you what, you could feel the darkness. He turned the lights back on and he showed us the vent pipes. And on the vent pipes, they had a raised up arrow. And they, he told us that when, if the power failed or they were in a, a, some kind of cave and they couldn't see and no light, they reached for those vent pipes and they could feel the arrow on there and they could find their way going, which way they were going by the arrows they had put on those pipes to give them direction. It was the blackest thing I've ever saw in my life. And so many years I've thought after that, that's exactly what happens in my life and your life when you get off the path of righteousness and you go the way of darkness. That's why so many of God's people lose their perspective. Now you can't tell if it's up or if it's down, if it's left or it's right. You don't know what's in front of you. You don't know what's in back of you. You, don't, you can't see anything. What a great picture that is of a, of a Christian who has lost the light of God through the Word of God because the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 105, thy word is a lamp on thy feet and a light unto my path. Amen. You lose that course, you get off that path, you lose that light in your life, you get off the path of a rightness, and now you're on the way of darkness, and you lose all your perspective. That's why the farther you get away from God, the goofier things you do. You lose your surroundings. You lose your perspective. You lose everything of your senses. You're in darkness. And you're trying to, you know, just because you're saved doesn't mean you have light. The light that God gave you is the book that you stay in. You get out of the book as a Christian, you'll be as black as the sides of the bottomless pit. But that's where we're at today. Now, this will be where the wisdom of the world replaces the wisdom of God. This is where the evil man, which is talked about in Colossians 2 in the form of philosophy, comes in. And the Bible says, and it's a great verse, Proverbs 19.21, it says, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. That verse simply sees that man works 24 hours, seven days a week, unsaved man, to come up with an alternative to God and the Word of God. He'll work his tail off trying to find ways for you to live your life, come up with philosophies of living that'll get you around that book so you don't have to get on the right path and you can follow the path of darkness. And God's people fall into it all the time. Remember, whatever happens in the world creeps into Christianity about 20 or 30 years later. It really does. This is where we find situation ethics. That what you do is based on any given situation. There's no absolute truth or guide you through it. There's no truth. There's no relative to truth. There's no standard, no guide. Your situation, you decide. Uh, there's no rule of the day. If it, it, you decide on how it feels. 
Your situation guides you, not the principles guiding your situation. This is where we get into the big $100 words that these guys put out that impress people, that make people want to listen to them, like Epicureanism, where all knowledge is arrived at by experience through your senses. Basically, if it feels good, it must be right. This is where you find hedoism, that pleasure is the highest goal in life. So we get into self-indulgence. We get into no restraint, no restriction. We put no limits on what we allow ourselves to do. We have no rule of contact. This is what we call naturalism, the thought of no spiritual value in anything, that it's all in nature, all in the sun, all in the moon, Mother Nature, all of the great things, the environment. I'm a tree hugger. Save the whales, all of the things that go on. You realize this morning when I was eating my breakfast, I almost spit my cereal back in the bowl. On television in front of me was a list of two churches over in Kansas. I guess they have nothing else to do. I guess they lost their Bible so long ago, the guy got nothing to preach. So now they're having two services on this Sunday, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, where they bless your animals. Bring your animals in and we'll have the blessings of the animals day. Now, I'm not sure where that's at in the book of Acts, but I've got it must be in there. What happened to Christianity? What happened to churches that we get so messed up and so far from the truth and so far from the book that instead of preaching the word of God on Sunday, instead of opening up the Bible and saying, what saith the Lord, we got nothing to say, nothing to preach. So what we do now is what are we going to do this Sunday? I know, let's have bless your animal Sunday. I hope somebody brings in an elephant with diarrhea. Many devices in a man's heart. Paganism. This will be your new age movement. No absolute truth. This will be no relative truth. This will be you can't know anything for sure. I was preaching one time, well, I was teaching one time on astronomy in the Bible back in Ohio in a college one time. And a college professor, one of the kids got me in, and he was just fuming over there. And I was going through, and I was doing a pretty good. The kids were loving it. I was laying it all out. He was going nuts. And I was talking about an absolute truth. And he banged his table. He had all he could take. He banged his fist on his table and he says, there is no absolute truth. All the kids looked at him, looked back at me. I threw up one of them Nehemiah prayers, you know, when you throw up in your middle and thing. I looked at him and I said, wow, that was a pretty absolute statement. They don't want any truth today. I grew up in a generation, some of you did too, where the generation said, tell it like it is. Tell it like it is, bro. Tell it like it is. That when then you told it like it was, nobody wanted to hear it. See? I've been around a while. I've been around a block a couple of times, not much to see. This is pragmatism. This is where many of the churches have went today. We call it neo-orthodoxy. You know what neo-orthodoxy is? Neo-orthodoxy started about 1900. Neo-orthodoxy is the fact that uh, we as churches now are going to take the Bible and uh, we're not going to bring man to the standard of the Bible. We're going to take the Bible to where man is at. 
And this is why you have lesbians and you have gay priests and you have all the things that, that uh, have come in because their, their idea is in neo-orthodoxy that the Bible is, is, is a book, but it isn't an absolute book. And our stand is we're going to leave the book up here and we're going to try to get you up where it's at. They take the book and bring it down to where man's at. So they change everything. And it's permeated. But it come out of that European mindset of the great philosophers. It really did. The, you know, the end justifies the means. Then we see liberalism. And liberalism is no standards at all. Man's quality of life is above all else, the common good. That man deserves things. So we have entitlements today that the whole world is dependent on the government giving you everything. The government over me giving me everything versus the church over me and God giving me everything. That's what it comes down to. There's no such thing as God anymore in the sense that we knew him in the Bible. Now God is your higher power. That can be whatever you want it to be. If you go through Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, uh, they, they'll tell you to get in touch with your higher power. Well, that could be your St. Bernard at home. What does that mean? We get away with a death penalty, do away with capital punishment. You know why? Because man's life is the highest quality, and it's okay for him to kill you, but because we're civilized, we don't kill him, not according to the Bible. You find capital punishment before the law, during the law, and after the law. Now, God sums all this mess up in Judges, uh, in the book of Judges, chapter 20, verse 25, and he puts it in one verse that puts it all in the same box. He simply says this, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we're at today. I think it was 1882, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher. He fostered the idea that God had died. He came up with a concept that God was dead. And that spread through Europe. And I don't know if you've been to Europe, but Europe 400 years ago was the hotbed of New Testament Christianity. There was a time in places in like Czechoslovakia that every person in Czechoslovakia almost was born again. There was a time in Europe where just about everybody, one, nine out of ten people were saved and born again. Europe is the most amoral, immoral place you've ever met in your, been in your life today. You know why? Because the philosophy that man came up, those devices, it creeps in and it destroyed Christianity. Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. And Europe went completely dead. In 1960 or 1966, I think it was, Time Magazine with the... With the with the rise of the, of the atheist movement in America in 1960 or 1966, Time Magazine on the cover put the big thing, is God dead? Because they're looking at all these atheists that have now come into America. You realize in this country, every time you as a Christian want to put up a monument to God of the Ten Commandments, the atheists demand to put up one to their whatever they got? I read last week where you have these dial of prayers for Christians, you know, that you call up and you get the prayer for today. You know, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. Well, the atheists came up with that. They got a dial an atheist. You call it and nobody answers. <laughs> You'll get it by 3 o'clock this afternoon. You'll be telling everybody at work tomorrow about it. Show you how it works. 1882. Nietzsche said God was dead. Europe went kaput. 1966, the great revival of atheism in this country. Time Magazine now asked the question, the most, one of the most noted magazines in America, asked the question, is God dead? We laugh at that as Christians. 
I, I, I got a message I preach. God is dead. And I just tear the thing apart. We make fun of it. We laugh about it. And intellectually, you'd say today, well, if you're a Christian sitting here, God is not dead. But let me show you how the evil man creeps in. You may say God's not dead with your mouth, but why do you live your life so inerrant to God like he is dead? Amen. Why do you do nothing with your life? Why do you, though God has saved you. If he's alive, why do you not serve him? If he's really alive, why do you say he's alive, but you live your life like he died in 1942? Amen. See how it creeps in? Creeps in and we don't even know it. This is what Proverbs keeps from happening. Well, the third step down. Now, without a moral compass or a path, and we're on a path of total darkness, now the Bible says in, in, in verse 14, it only gets worse. Now he rejoices to do evil. Now, this is where 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says that the Christian sears his conscience. This is where the Christian gets to the point in his life that he's went off the right path. He's in darkness. He's lost his perspective. He's in the way of wickedness. And now, believe it or not, a saved person. Now, right now, a saved person, a saved person is rejoicing to do evil. There's no conviction about his drinking, no conviction about his fornicating, no conviction about his drugs, no conviction about anything in his life. We now have in society, and it has come into Christianity, we blame everything that should be our personal responsibility on somebody else. Now we've created a whole vocabulary to get us around personal responsibility and accountability. Now we've come up with a whole system of terms that gives us a self-justification for whatever lifestyle you want to live, and it brings the man and the woman to the place where now, because they've left the path, they're in darkness, now they rejoice. I'll tell you, there's seven things in that Bible God rejoices over. And sin isn't one of them. Now we have terms like, well, you always have an alternative choice. Somebody says, well, I'm gay. Well, that's just an alternative lifestyle. Well, I, I, you know, I got all kinds of, I hear, I hear, I hear voices and see things and, and, and all that. Well, that's just, you, we just have to have a reevaluation. There was a time when an alcoholic was called a drunk. Now we call them chronic alcoholics. There was a time when a bum was a bum. Now we call them transients. There was a time when a homosexual was a homosexual, a lesbian, a lesbian. Now we, we have transgender. Sounds neat, doesn't it? Almost want to be one. There was a time when it was a husband and wife in marriage. Now we've lost that. So we come up with a term now that will cover all the bases. This is my significant other. Now we become proactive. Now we have a rethinking of sin, and we've taken sin, good old-fashioned sin, garden variety sin, and now sin no longer is sin. Now sin becomes a sickness. Alcoholism isn't a sin. You're sick. Drugs are now, I've, how many times I've heard them get up there and say, I just cringe. I just have to put duct tape on my mouth, and it has to be that gorilla tape because I need something strong to keep my mouth shut. 
I heard get up one time and says, now if you're a drug addicted to drugs, it's really not your fault. Most cases we find that it's in your heredity of your family. Your dad had problem with drugs, your mother had problem with drugs, so it's in your genes. And it just comes through. So you know, when you start telling somebody that their sin is a sickness, you know what? If you get the flu, it isn't your fault. If you get a cold, it isn't necessarily your fault. But if you get into sin, it is your fault. Amen. But that's where we go today. It's exactly what we do. It isn't your fault. Why, you're just a victim. You're just a victim. You know, the fact that you're a homosexual or a lesbian, that's, that's, that's not your fault. Nature just threw you a curveball. Boy, he sure did. <laughs> strike one, strike two, and strike three. You see, this is where Christians get it. It comes from the world, for the evil men. It always has to be somebody else's fault. It's not your fault you're a drug addict. It's not your fault you're an alcoholic. It's not your fault you're this. It's not your fault you're that. It's somebody else's fault. And what we do in the world, the evil man does, he takes away complete personal responsibility and accountability. And what I said, what happens in the world creeps into Christianity in a very short time. I have a list of verses out of the Old Testament that I always keep real handy. They totally explain what's happening today because it shows you what happened to Israel, but the parallels are too great. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own life. You know what they do? They call evil good. We do today. We call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 59.14 says, And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. We have no balance in our lives. We have no balance in our world because there's no truth that's fallen in the street. Hosea 8.12.13 says, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifice of mine offerings and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Shall they return to Egypt? The great things of God that he puts in that Bible become strange things to God's own people. Man. Amos 8, 11. And 12, behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Now, I want you to notice that grace verse says that it's here. The problem is not that it's not here. The problem is that nobody wants to hear it today. Malachi chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Ye offered polluted bread upon mine altar, and say, Wherein have you polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. If ye offer uh, the blind for the sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? How it now, uh, offer it now unto thy governor, for he will be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, which saith the Lord. You know what he says? He says, You brought me a polluted Bible, and now you bring me a polluted sacrifice. And you stand there with your polluted Bible and your polluted sacrifice, and you say to me, What's wrong, God? Why won't you accept this? You know what the model that is in the Bible? Cain and Abel. One of them brought the right offering, the other one brought the labor of his hands. God accepted one, he would not accept the other. And here's the real problem. First Chronicles 15, 3. Now for a long time Israel hath been without the true God 
and without a teaching priest and without law. There's America today. For a long time, America has been without a true God. For a long time, they have been without a man who will stand in the pulpit and preach them the truth. Oh, they got the big screens and they got the big lights flashing and they got the praise bands and they got all the stuff that goes on. They don't have the truth. And the end result today is found in Haggai chapter 1 verse 6. And this is where God's people are today. This is where exactly where some of you are today. I don't know if you'll ever figure it out or not. I don't know if you ever do anything about it. But here's your problem. You got off the right path. You got on the dark path and you got downhill from there. Look at Haggai 1.6. Now therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, consider your ways. That's good advice. You have sown much and bring in little. But you eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. There it is. There's your life without the word of God. There's somebody who gets more and not satisfied. There's somebody who has all they want to eat and all they want to drink, not satisfied. And all your life, you amass what you think is going to make you happy, and you put it in your little bag. And when you get to the end of the life, you know what your problem is? You're empty because you put it in a bag with holes. That's life without the Word of God. Just that simple. Your life is a bag with holes. All you try to amass, all you try to get, all you try to put into it, at the end of the day, you're empty. A complete total breakdown of God's people, just like Israel. The complete failure of the single aspect that God intended uh, in both Israel and the church to do the job, and that was the family. And that's how it goes. Number four. Now, not only do they rejoice in evil, but now verse 14 says, he delights in the frowardness of the wicked. Now, the word frowardness is an old English word, and it means twisted. It means something that's not straight, something that's not right. I mean, it's hard to believe that Christians could get to the place in their life where, as we've already seen, they could what? Rejoice in sin? And two, now, delight in sin? I can give you 5,000 verses in that Bible that tells you what you ought to delight yourself in, the law of the Lord, and you ought to rejoice in. But no, no. Here's a child of God. How do they get there? How do they get that? It's a five-step process down. That's how they get there. Now, you see this all the time, number four. Sin never leaves a man better than it finds him. They delight in the frowardness of the world. And this is how it translates for you and me. When they get to this point, And you see it all the time. When you get to this point, here's what happens. Put your money on the marker. Put your all you got on it because it's true every time you find it. Now, this translates out to you and me in the old saying. When they get to this point in their life, when they get off the path, they get into darkness, and they delight and they rejoice to do evil and wickedness, then the old saying comes to pass. Birds of a feather flock together. Your mama used to tell you that. It simply means that wicked people will always find their support system with other wicked people. People who live like the devil will always find their justification for their sin by hanging out with other people who live like the devil. That's the way it works. It's the craziest thing you ever saw. People quit growing spiritually. They quit the ministry, or maybe they're never in the ministry. They never win souls. They stop studying the Bible if they ever did. They get mad at the church, the preacher or somebody in the church, 
And to justify themselves, they find other disgruntled people who don't minister either, who don't win souls either, who don't study the Bible either, and they find their support system through people who justify themselves and the whole crowd who never minister, the whole crowd who never won a soul in their life, the whole crowd who never, who never study their Bible, all think that they're right, and the soul-winning, ministry-minded, Bible-teaching church is wrong. Now, what is wrong with that? Let me tell you what's wrong with it. Isaiah 5.20, woe unto him that call evil good. That's what's wrong with it. Then the fifth one, last and the final phase. And by now the progression of the young man or the young woman who has been beguiled by the evil man and the strange woman, the work has been done. The evil man now through the world system has shared the home, the meals, and many times abducted the children. He's finished his work. Now the child is a man or a woman and they're in their 20s and 21, 25, 30 somewhere. And they're no longer in your home and their lifestyle is now established. And nobody is going to change it. The step down that killed them. One, leaving the path of uprightness. Two, walking in the ways of darkness. Three, the searing of the conscience to get you to the place in your life where you actually rejoice to do evil. And you see it all the time. You see it on Facebook. You see it in the party pictures. You see it here where somebody's having their beer, doing their drugs, talking about this, talking about that. Christians who are living like the world, enjoying it, delighting themselves and rejoicing in it. You know how they get there? Do you know how they get there? Do you know how they get there? Five steps down. And it all starts with leaving that book. It all starts with the leaving the path of uprightness. It all comes to the walking in the ways of darkness, searing their conscience to get to the place in their life where they actually rejoice to do evil. And now they delight. They take delight in the forward lifestyle that brought them to the bottom, that leaves them empty, that brings them to the drug out wards and the alcoholic wards, and it brings them their life, and they lose everything because it's a bag with holes, but they enjoy it. A life of emptiness. And now the fifth thing is simply this, verse 15. They've established themselves and their ways are crooked. And they're forward in their path. Now they're twisted. Their lifestyle is now set. The work of the evil man has been done. And you need to see this. The Bible says, Psalms 127.3, that low children are the heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his delight. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to there quickly first here is the fact that it says, low children are a heritage of the Lord. The corrupt NIV says that children are a heritage from the Lord. That's not true. That's not what it's talking about. They missed the whole point, but then why wouldn't they? No, low children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. God's plan with Israel and the church was an unbroken chain of ministry through the, within the family, one generation to the next. The family unit in the Old Testament was the same as the family unit in the New Testament, and as far as God's plan to get his message to the world. I told you last week, you deliver a message as parents to your children. 
I told you last week, having kids don't make you a father. Anybody can find a woman and have kids or find a man and have kids. Being a woman, uh, being a, being a, uh, uh, having kids doesn't make you a father, but rather taking responsibility for those kids is what makes you a father. And you give your kids a message. You train your kids in a message. You teach them that message, and then they carry that message out that you gave them. I don't know if you noticed or not, the first two attacks in your Bible in Genesis 3 and 4 was on the family. Adam and Eve were a husband and a wife. The first attack in Genesis 3, he came after the weaker vessel and destroyed the family. And then, just one chapter later, he got one of the boys in that family to kill the other boy. The first two attacks in your Bible are against the family, showing you that God's unit for his carrying the gospel is families ministering together in an unbroken chain down through the generations. The evil man got the parents first, then he got one of the boys, and then he destroyed the family. But it all started with the parents. The children God has given up need to be protected. Those little babies and those little kids you got in the elementary and those teenagers you got, they need to be preserved. They need to be kept from the evil man. The families that the New Testament need to take uh, the instructions of a father and the law of thy mother and apply all that he says to the families. Families ministering together. Keep that unbroken chain of ministering alive. When they're by your side, when they're four, five, six, or seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, they'll be by your side when they're twenty, twenty-one, thirty. It's just that simple. The family, the children of the family are God's heritage, not your heritage. And those kids are the fruit of his womb. They're for his honor and glory. God's plan was to win the world to Christ by families in the Old Testament and the New Testaments who formed an unbroken chain. He gave you everything you needed to give you an unbroken chain of ministry that you minister with your children, they with their children, and it goes on generation after generation after generation. Talked to Bryce this last week. Raise your hand, Bryce, so everybody can see who you are. I had no idea when I talked to him and they came over to talk about wanting to get married down the line someplace. And I said, in a short time, 20, 30 years would be just fine. And they agreed to that. In a course of talking, and he's a fine young guy. I mean, he's a great guy. Uh, are you in a prayer group, man's prayer group? Okay, good. Uh, and, I, you know, and he's a fine young guy. And we were talking back and forth. And I told, and he's from Wichita. And I, my old stomping grounds, I've been preached down through Wichita many, many years. And I got talking about a, a, a great pastor down there whose name was Doyle Hopper. Doyle Hopper was a great preacher. My pastor in Ohio, Dr. Harold Henniger, uh, were both friends. Uh, Doyle Hopper and Harold Henniger, or John Rawlings, and a bunch of them were out of J. Frank Norris' crowd. He's a great preacher. Well, I didn't know it at the time. When I saw his eyes light up, and he told me, he says that he was... He is, Doral Hopper, was, he's his great-grandson of Doral Hopper. And I thought to myself, wow. Wow. That, that, that's, a, that's an honor for me, that, for somebody. To do, but you know what it shows? It shows that Doral Hopper died when he was, what, 54, 55, back in 76, of a brain cancer. But the, the legacy of his family goes on with his parents and their parents and now him. When they get married with them, that's what I'm talking about. 
One guy back there, boy, that preached the Word of God and preached it straight, hot, and true with Doyle Hopper. He believed that book cover to cover just like I do. He preached just like what we believe. And here I have his great-grandson in my church today. I, that's an honor that I don't even know how to respond to. But that's what God intended. And now just like his daddy ministered in Wichita, just like, you know, his daddy ministered in that church, and then his daddy, grandfather ministered in that church, and now he's ministering in my church. That's what it's supposed to be. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. Families ministering together, keeping that unbroken chain of ministry alive. The need for parents to see this tremendous responsibility that they have to not only protect and keep their family, but the bigger, large picture to preserve the chain of unbroken ministry. It isn't just about, I mean, it is, but it isn't just about having your kids not go into the world. I mean, I don't want that for any family, and I'm sure you don't either, but don't stop there. It isn't about just your family not going into the world. It's bigger than that. Get some discernment. Get some discretion. See it as it really is. It's not just, I don't want my kid to be worldly. I don't want my kid not to come to church. I don't want this. I, I don't want that either, and I'd do anything in my power to help you with that. But at the end of the day, that's not just what it's all about. The bigger picture is the unbroken chain of a legacy of children who are a heritage of the Lord, families ministering together in an unbroken chain, generation after generation after generation. And there become the fruit of his womb for the Lord. The, God, the children God gives us, we train them up and raise them up to minister with us for him. And in training your children to train their children and their children until the Lord comes back, it never stops. It never stops. Now next week I'm going to talk to about the strange woman. But I want to say this. I know some of you got into Christianity late in life, later in life. Your kids were already grown. Maybe they were already gone. Or maybe they were on their way out. You couldn't reverse the process. I understand that. Let me just say this to you, because I don't want this message to be a discouragement to anybody. There's always something you can do. There's always something that you can do, no matter where you're at in your given situation. The problem is not what you can do. The problem is, will you do what you have to do? That's the question. Next week, we'll talk about the strange woman. We'll detail her out, just like we did the evil man today. Let's have a word of prayer. In about five or ten minutes, I'll call everybody back in here for restart, and we'll get going. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for today, for the people that have come. Thank you for the book of Proverbs and its power and what it means and what it helps. And help us, Lord, to always stay focused on the families. Help us, Lord, to, to always uh, keep before them uh, the moms and dads in this church. And we have so many of them that have little kids and, and kids that are approaching that age where they're going to have to make some decisions about Christ. And, and, Lord, they're being faced with the things of the world. And, Lord, we just help us to always just take the stand that we can help them, be there for them, to give them the encouragement and instruction. Don't let this church be like all the other churches. We don't care about the big movie screens. We don't care about the chandeliers in the ballroom. We don't care about all of that stuff. We just care about a book that you gave us that will change our life, that will preserve and keep our families. And that's what we want to do. And we want this church to be an unbroken chain of families that will continue to, to, to minister, teach their kids how to minister, for those kids to teach those kids how to minister till Jesus comes back. 
And we'll thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll call you back up here in about, oh, 